Hello and welcome to the Of Interest podcast. We're joined today by a, a very excellent guest, Peter Dunn, former leader of uh, United Future um, and now a political commentator. And, and we're going to talk through the process of coalition negotiations, of which you, Peter, have done Five? That's correct, yes. Hi. That's quite a number. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. Yes, it's more than anyone else, actually, which I find quite interesting in the current context. So arguably you're New Zealand's most experienced coalition negotiator? <laughs> well, as I say, I've done more than anyone else. Yes. But you haven't got a call from anyone to uh, be their champion? No, I haven't, no. <laughs> and I wouldn't expect to, because these things are all in the moment, and they move on. So um, you know, what happened last time or the time before is really not relevant to what happens now. So that's something I was very keen to ask you is, is there a framework, is there a, a normal process that goes through it, or is it just sort of ad hoc based on what different coalitions, interests and dynamics are? It's, it's more ad hoc than organised. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they the, the negotiations I was involved in tend to follow a similar pattern, mm-hmm. but they always rely on um, the leader of the party who's likely to lead the government making the first approach. Okay. And then, uh, the, then what happens is uh, we, we have a sort of a get-together, you know, usually two or three days after the election, to scope what the possibilities might be, what sort of a relationship they might be interested in, what sort of relationship we might be interested in. Mm-hmm. What are the issues that are on the table? Um, National was always more upfront in saying, these are the four or five key things we've got to get through. Okay. Uh, if you if you if we can get your support on those, then what can we trade on the other side? Mm-hmm. Labor was a bit more wary. I don't think it saw its agenda as sort of that automatically negotiable. Then what you do after that is you say, oh yeah, okay, I think there's sort of scope here. You might have a discussion about what are particular priorities on your side versus their side, and then the chiefs of staff normally go away and start to nut together what looks like a draft agreement. Okay. And then you come back and you talk that through and you haggle over the bits and pieces and get the figures that you might need or the, you know, the details. Did you, did, when you got that call, did you go into those negotiations with a policy or, or, or a win in mind that you were going for? Or oh, was it about finding alignment? A bit of both. You always have some things that you want. You see you've got the opportunity to achieve. So I always took the view that as a minor party, we couldn't overplay our hand. On the other hand, we couldn't sell ourselves too cheaply. So what was the... What were the things, the two or three key things that we wanted to get out of that? And what were we prepared to either um, sort of draw the line in the sand on on the other side or say, look, don't like that, but it's not the end of the world. If you want to pursue that, we're not going to stand in your way. And that sort of give and take. Um, it was never a, never a case of saying, here's our manifesto, take it or leave it. Yeah. Um, you know, there was always a bit of trade-off. And... I think there were a couple of occasions where things that we were promoting that the larger party sort of wanted to do but felt it couldn't promote, it was quite happy to let us do it. So we got a win-win out of it. Do you have any examples of of policy wins or or things you scuttled? Uh, Well, I can give you a couple of examples. Um, This one one involves Labour, and that was... um, we were very keen to bring in public-private partnerships for roading development with an eye to the development of the Transmission Gully Motorway. Which is great, by the way. Yep, thank you. Labor, Labor's position was interesting. This was Helen Clark, Michael Cullen time. They were not opposed to PPPs, mm-hmm. but they felt they couldn't sell them, particularly because they had a relationship with the Greens, who were vehemently opposed to such things. They found it quite easy to be able to say... Uh, to the Greens, well, we've done this deal with United Future and PPPs are going to be a possibility, uh, depending on the circumstances. Um, 
knowing they couldn't have done it by themselves. So that sort of thing. Yeah, where, okay. And we wanted them because we wanted to be able to say, well, here's how you build that motorway. In the end, when the Nats came in, they said, no, we'll just fund it directly. So the issue didn't arise. But, but the important point there was both of us wanted something. We could be the ones up front advocating mm-hmm. for it. Labor was quite happy to get that. I think on the other side... Um, the 2014 election was interesting because on the night, National had won an outright majority. And I remember John Key calling me and saying, look, um, we're not going to need you guys, act all the narrow parties we'd had previously, but because we've worked together over the, the last six years, we're happy to keep you on. Mm-hmm. But we won't be making any concessions to you. Okay. So all we'll be seeking from you is confidence and supply, and we'd like to wrap this all up pretty quickly which happened by about the Monday or the Tuesday of the following week. I checked in with both the Maori Party and ACT to find that they'd been made similar offers, and they both said to me, what are we going to do? And I said, I reckon we take them. But mm-hmm. bird in the hand, always worth two in the bush. We did. About 10 days later, the specials came in, and National lost a couple of seats, and it's outright majority. And suddenly realised that they had a bit of a problem. They came back to us and said, look, we think we need to renegotiate mm-hmm. those agreements. Um, and I said, no, we've got a signed piece of paper here. Yeah. And I went to the other two and said, you know, we need to stay the line on this, which we did. So National ended up in the worst of all worlds, really, where it had supply partners. It wasn't conceding anything to, but all it was getting from us was confidence and supply. Everything else had to be negotiated case by case. Okay. And that made for an interesting three years. It worked, yeah. but you know, if they'd been a little less impatient and waited till the specials, they could have, from their point of view, got better deals. So, you know, that's just some, some of the dynamics. Interesting. So do you think National might have learned that lesson, and that's one reason why they're, they're seemingly partially holding off for the special votes before finalising any agreements they're talking, but... Yeah, I think that's possible. I think, I think that uh, in 2014 they just jumped the gun a wee bit early. Uh, I don't think they expected to lose seats and suddenly found they lost a couple, and then, as I say, all bets were off. Uh, I think it's prudent for them to wait until they know exactly what they're dealing with, whether it, because if you know the challenge for them then becomes if they emerge after the specials with a one seat or two seat majority, they don't need New Zealand first, but they, do they still take the insurance policy mm. and what's the price? That's yeah. I think the calculation for them, and they want to know in a way just what what the price is having, going to have to be uh, when when the time comes. Christopher Luxon has put quite a lot of emphasis on these talks being private and not wanting them to play out in the media. Some of the media have got a bit upset about that, as media tend to do. Um, what do you make of that? Aren't these talks always secretive? They are, but I think they have become a circus in, in recent years when you've had the traipsing to and fro across this building with okay. microphones and the people camped out on the, as it used to be, the foyer of Bowen House waiting for any development. I remember one year, I can't remember which year it was, but there was an um, electronic shop on the ground floor down there and I wanted to buy something new for my computer at home and I came out at lunchtime and was followed by the media packers and great thing out the front door into the shop when I bought this thing and went back up back up to my office they really thought they were going to get something but I was just going out to buy as I say something for my computer at home I think that's the sort of circus side of it that Luxon's reacting against okay. he wants to be able to do this in privately and I think there's one other Factor. Um, I thought he, when he said at the beginning he was not going to be saying anything to anyone, mm-hmm. I thought he was also sending a pretty clear warning to ACT and New Zealand First and don't you either. Mm-hmm. 
Because if you look at New Zealand First's track record, they like to control negotiations. They like to be the ones that sort of indicate where things are at. And they always announce who they're going with. Okay. You know, I think it's been an edifying spectacle both for Jacinda Ardern um, in 2017 and for Jim Bolger way back in 1996 to be hanging around literally waiting to hear at the same time as the rest of us yeah. which one was going to become Prime Minister. Um, the bronze medal winner shouldn't tell the gold and silver medals who they are. Okay. And um, so I think Luxon's trying to guard against all that sort of thing happening again. Right. So he's not so much telling the media, I'm not going to talk to you. He's indirectly telling the other parties, don't talk to the media. Yeah, and I'm in control of these negotiations. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um it's interesting. I I totally think that's a good way to go about it, and I respect that. But it is a little bit frustrating as the media for two weeks you have nothing to write about. Mm, mm, I, no, I agree, and um, but that's in a way probably the way it should have been right from the outset. We've got used to the sort of the the daily. Um, parade of, you know, what does that shrug of the shoulders mean or that raised eyebrow mean or that little aside mean and trying to read into them all sorts of things that aren't, aren't there. Normally these negotiations proceed quite quickly and quite mm. smoothly. I remember in, 19, no, when was it? 2002, the first negotiations I did, we um, completed them and Helen Clark said she was going to take a holiday for a week. Okay. And then when she came back we'd do the formal announcement. That was fine, and, and everyone kept very tight, except about the following evening, I turned on the late TV news to hear TVNZ reporting that the talks had been completed, a deal had been agreed, and they didn't quite have the full story, but they had most of it. Something had happened. And it was fascinating because it was a young journal, journalist at the time who, I don't know how she got the story, but she had... But no one else believed her. It only ever ran once before she was sort of told, no, that's nonsense, and the whole thing disappeared. Right. But I was left thinking, who's talked? Um, and I still don't know. Right. I've, I've talked to her subsequently. I still don't know how it happened. But there was a real moment of panic there when you think this whole thing's been blown apart. Mm. But we were saved by the fact that no one else believed it. So it's interesting to hear you say that, that often these things go quite, quite quickly and smoothly. Um, if, if you had to hazard a guess... How soon after November 3rd, when we get the final votes, do you think we could have a government, or is that too speculative? No, I don't know, obviously, but I think pretty quickly. Mm. I think what we're going to find is that the deals will have been largely done and just need to be finalised once the final figures are in. And I say that for a couple of reasons. One is I think that's probably Luxon's style. Mm-hmm. But there's a second reason. Parliament's got to sit by mid-November, sorry, mid-December at the latest, under okay. the law. Yeah. And the Governor-General has made it clear uh, that... If there is not a government in place by that time, Parliament still has to sit, there still has to be a state opening, she still has to deliver a speech from the throne, which would be prepared by the caretaker, Prime Minister, which would be a nonsense. So I think there's a time pressure to get this over, um, probably by mid-November at the absolute latest, so that all these other processes can start to take place, that Parliament can sit by mid-December, and that the government does have a legislative programme to start to progress at that point. If it can't do that, I mean, I don't think we'll get to the scenario where um, the Labour Party is still technically in power at that point, but if, if, it, if it dragged on any later, there'd be a real rush, and I think it would look, you know, the, government, the new government would have lost the opportunity to sort of set out its agenda and maybe introduce a couple of key bills before Christmas, mm-hmm. and I just don't think they'll let that happen. Right. So the three parties might be coming to some sort of arrangement on the... Yeah, they probably have a pretty good guess as how the specials will play out mm-hmm. after they come out. They might be able to announce that quite quickly, potentially. I would think so. Uh, you know, within a couple of days or so. And... I think what Luxon clearly has in mind is that he will announce it at that yep. point. 
Uh, and that's as I, I think that's entirely as it should be. But uh, he's clearly sending the sign that he's controlling this by having them, you know, privately in Auckland, mm-hmm. by sending all these signals about people keeping quiet. He's going to be the one that says I can now form a government composed of the following bits and pieces. Yeah, I do remember being in a supermarket, and it must have been 2017 when when Winston Peters was making his decision announcement. Mm-hmm. I was sort of holding a phone yeah. to my ear, listening to RNZ as I went through the checkouts, and it was very memorable, and it was wonderful theatre. Oh, yeah. But in terms of the democratic process, maybe yes. it's a little bit topsy-turvy. Well, it's led me to, um, I've, I've got a, a view which is um, not relevant in this context, but I don't like the process of parallel negotiations. Okay. And New Zealand First always had that. Mm-hmm. I think that the rules need to be changed, and I accept that the Governor-General shouldn't be involved, mm-hmm. except for one step. I think after an election, the Governor-General should go to the leader of the largest party and invite that leader to form a go- or to attempt to form a government mm-hmm. and give them, I don't know, 21 days or something to, to do so. If they can within that period, well and good. If they can't, then they either go back to the Governor-General and say, hey, we're close to a deal, can I have an extension? Or we can't do it, at which point the Governor-General then invites the second leading party to say, well, can you do it? Oh, interesting. But I just don't think it's appropriate to have, I'm talking to you in the morning and you in the afternoon, yeah. you've offered this, what are you going to counter it with? And that sort of auction, auction by, by the minor party. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, just if the Governor-General just kicked the process off by saying, and all she would have needed to do in this case was to say on Sunday morning, I will be inviting Mr Luxon to attempt to form a government. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. Okay, that brings me to a, to a relevant question, which is what what is it that defines how much you as a minor party can ask for? Is it just how many seats you've got or is it, as you say, how much leverage there is? Can you play people off? I think it's, 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 it's how much influence you've got, uh, which may not necessarily relate to seats. Okay. Um, I found myself uh, on a couple of occasions having just one seat, but considerably more influence because it was the seat that made or broke the government. Okay. Um, on other occasions, if you've got more seats, you might just be part of the, the crowd, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So the trick then is to work out, if you're in that situation, what is a responsible course to take? Because the public don't like tails wagging dogs. Mm. So what can you reasonably get and what can you reasonably prevent or moderate? Mm-hmm. And that's obviously case case by case, situation by situation. Knowing always that what happens in those situations is that if you're the key vote and controversial legislation passes because of your key vote, it's all your fault. Okay. It's not the government that promoted it, it's your fault. You right. could have stopped it. Equally, if something that you've wanted passes by one vote, the government's achieved that. Okay. And you're always in that bind of being responsible for the bad stuff and yet not getting the credit for the good stuff that you've promoted. Yeah. And that's just life. It's very interesting. It might be a coincidence, but but ACT, they were, they were polling very well and then declined towards the end. That decline came shortly after they took a really, made some comments about um, how they're going to be really tough mm, in negotiations mm. and possibly even not mm, go mm. into coalition. Um, and it may just be a coincidence, but that did seem to be an unpopular statement. People started worrying about the stability of the government, and it seemed like they lost votes around then. It might be a coincidence. No, I, I think it's more than coincidence. I'd felt for some time probably from about July that ACT was overplaying its hand a little bit. Mm. You, know, you need to wait for the votes to be counted to know exactly what your influence is going to be. ACT was talking, I think, far too loudly about how it was going to control, mm. you know, basically, we'll, we'll be the spine for this incoming government, all that I sort of stuff. Uh, I think people don't like that. Mm. So when they started to then say, well, we mightn't even join it, in an environment where the mood was clearly for change, yeah. 
I think that did count against them and people thought we can't risk that. So they, they either went to national or I suspect after Christopher Luxon's welcoming of New Zealand first, mm. they went there. Yeah, and it seems like they've really moderated their tone mm. to the point that I think David Seymour's even said, I could sit around a cabinet table with Winston Peters, yes. which previously was out yes, of the question. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. How did you find it being, being a, a minister outside of cabinet? How, how important is that distinction? Uh, it's not that great really right. because um, under both governments, I always went to Cabinet when I had items okay. that needed attention. I went to Cabinet on other occasions where there were major issues being discussed, mm-hmm. um, or foreign leaders present, that type of thing. I actually found in a, in, a, in, a, in a funny sort of way that being outside gave you just a wee bit more freedom. Mm-hmm. You could do your own thing to a much greater extent, knowing that you, you know, you'd have to front to Cabinet eventually. And I always, one of the things that was, we always had in our agreements was a regular meeting with the Prime Minister, mm-hmm. probably once every three weeks or so. And I always used that to promote things and make sure that when I had stuff that was going to Cabinet, I had the support of the Prime Minister. Okay. And I remember one occasion with John Key where he pledged his ultimate support for me on something, and the Cabinet discussion was going anywhere but the way I wanted it, and I was thinking, so much for your support, mate, when suddenly he just said, yeah, well, I'm in favour of this. <laughs> and the whole mood changed yeah. And the thing went through. So I always found it easy, to, you know, very important to get the PM on side. Okay. And then, in a way, it didn't matter if you weren't necessarily part of all the other backroom discussions. You were there when it counted and you knew who was backing you. Yeah, that's interesting. It brings me to another thing. Luxon has, has said that, you know, while they wait for the special votes to come in, um, they've been working a lot on, on just the relationship mm. and the chemistry. I think, I think he's particularly talking about mm. between him and Peters, mm. who don't really have much of a history. How important is that personal relationship when it comes to forming a coalition or the chemistry? It's absolutely critical. Okay. There's got to be mutual trust. Yeah. I was very fortunate in that I had known and deeply respected Helen Clark for a long number of years, uh, and we've always got on extremely well at a personal level. I think the feeling was, I'd like to think it was mutual, and we were able to have a very direct and straight relationship. I developed that with John Key to the same extent, and it's critical where, you know, you're almost, you can be in a position where they might want to sound off to you about some of their frustrations, not about you, but about some of the other things that are going on, and knowing that you're not going to sort of betray that to colleagues because they're not your colleagues as such, but that you're a safety valve and you've got to be able to have that relationship where they can trust you to do what needs to be done and trust you not to go out there and sort of pull the pin or you know, do anything silly. Mm. It's, at the start of your career, you were a Labour MP. Mm. Did, how did that play out in terms of, I mean, you know, you did Clark therefore see you as being a, a, a fellow party member? To some extent, I think she did. I remember um, when, because one of my great friends and rivals in the Labour Party had been Michael Cullen. Okay. We had this funny odd, odd relationship. We were very good friends, but we were also conscious that we were both sort of angling for the same job in the, in the finance area. And in 2005, when I became Minister of Revenue and he was Minister of Finance, he came across to see me and he, he made a very interesting comment. He said, it's going to be interesting, you know, blah, 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 sort of after all the pleasantries. And then he said, I always knew it would come to this. And I think that was a sort of a recognition that we, we both, we both, we might, Michael and I probably disagreed about more than we agreed on. Okay. But we respected each other and we, we worked on the basis always of making sure that in any sort of presentation we were doing, all sides of the argument were heard. Mm-hmm. And 
that at the end of the day, whoever was looking in couldn't say, well, he won that one or he won that one, because everything was out there. We did a Holmes interview at one stage on the prospective sale of Air New Zealand to Singapore Airlines. Mm-hmm. Cullen was in favour, I think, and I was against. And we knew the Holmes format would be to set... Holmes would, was going to take the populist against view. Okay, yeah. And it would be... Th- he, the way he set it up would be the two of us on Cullen. That, you know, that's always the way he worked, two on one. So Michael and I decided beforehand that we wouldn't buy into that. We'd just make sure that all the arguments were put out there. Okay. And so the interview was very much, well, Peter's right when he says this. Yes, I agree with Michael when he says that. And Holmes was getting very frustrated. So, you know, that sort of thing works. I think with Key, um, we developed a good friendship, and that meant that a lot of stuff happened. Not quite that way, but in a sort of a vein where you sort of knew instinctively where the other was going to go. Because I guess my next question was, did, did Key therefore see you as a labour man, and was that relationship harder to build? No, I don't think so. If he did, he never he never um, conveyed that to me. Um, and, um, no, the relationship was um, quite quite easy to build, really. We'd, I was lucky when he'd first got elected to Parliament, I was invited to go to Taiwan for the inauguration of the President, and the National Party was, invi- was invited to send someone along as well, and they sent John Key, who was this very young MP. So we had this trip away together, which was very good for sort of bonding yeah. a relationship at that point, and just, um, uh, yeah, we carried on over the years subsequently. That's useful. Um, in terms of ACT and New Zealand First in this arrangement, how much negotiating power do you, do you think they have? Because ACT obviously have got quite a good chunk of votes. Mm. Um, New Zealand First is there and is needed, or it looks like they will be needed, but then they have nowhere else to go. Yeah. What, what do you think about the sort of negotiating I, dynamics? This I time? think, in a way, ACT, ACT and New Zealand First are in similar positions. Neither have anywhere else to go. Mm. Um, and consequently, uh, the expectation is they will reach an agreement. So that puts National into a stronger position. It does, doesn't have to give away too much, knowing that the onus is actually on its two partners to come to the party. I think New Zealand first problem is particularly more acute because they are sort of at one step removed. Mm. If they're seen to be the problem, they'll pay the electoral price. Right. And I think that's um, something they'll be mindful of. They should also be mindful of, and so should National, that no government that's ever involved New Zealand First in any shape or form has survived beyond three years. Okay. So, you know, if I was national thinking about 2026 and beyond, I'd be thinking, how can we position this that we don't do, have the same thing happen to us as happened to national in 99, uh, Labour in 2008, uh, the breakup of the coalition in 2017. Yeah. Right. And... and should I surmise from that you're suggesting that keeping them a little more at arm's length might be better? Well, that's, that's I think, National's preference. Right. Uh, how they can do that mm-hmm. remains to be seen. On the one hand, New Zealand First will say, if you need us, you'll pay us, frankly. Yeah. On the other hand, New Zealand First might say, but hang on, we can't afford not to be there. Yeah. So that's where the trade-off is going to be. And, I, and it'll be really interesting. I, I, Luxon seems to be drawing very heavily on his commercial experience as a negotiator. It doesn't always transfer to the political environment, but this is going to be very interesting, I think, to see just how far he can utilise that skill yeah. to get a deal that sort of keeps everyone in the right place. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, people often say uh, running a company isn't 
the same as running a country. But I guess a negotiation is a negotiation in some, some, in yeah, some sense. Yeah. Yeah. And he'll know from his background, he talks about mergers and acquisitions, that the, the, the trick is to get a deal that everyone feels happy with, mm-hmm. yeah. even, even if one side's had the skin pulled off its back. <laughs> because, of course, if, if you feel like you have been shortchanged, yeah. you're going to be very unhappy yeah. sitting there in, 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 you know, in their outside cabinet throwing stones yeah, the whole time. Right. Yeah, okay, interesting. Uh, another thing that, that struck me as interesting this election, and it's, it's actually would have been more of a problem for the left maybe than the right, but this idea of um, do, does a policy need a majority mandate to be passed? And here I'm thinking specifically about the wealth tax, but I'm sure we could find examples mm-hmm. from the right. But let's just, as a thought experiment, say that the, the roles had reversed and, and um, you know, Labour and the Greens and Te Pāti Māori were forming a government. Both the Greens and Te Pāti Māori said they would insist on a wealth mm-hmm. tax in negotiations. Um, what, what do you think of that idea? Do you, do you think it would be uh, really democratic to oh, enact a policy like that? I think it's... <laughs> It's not so much a question of democracy as um, the willingness of the major party to concede a policy uh, and the practicality of it. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, I've got strong views against a wealth tax, but put those yeah, to one just side. Yeah, sort of any policy. Put those to one side. Yeah. And let's, let's just say we're proceeding down that path. You'd want to know, is how is this going to work? Mm. Is it actually going to work? How much is it going to be raised? Frankly, is it worth the effort? Those mm. sorts of considerations. If you're the major party, like Labour in this instance, you'd be wanting to say, well, if we give in on this, and it's not so much a losing face thing, but what impact is it going to have? Mm. You know, is, it, is it that big a deal, or is it more a symbolic sort of move? It's almost like throwing them, not crumbs, but some large pieces right. of cake. And if they concluded that, look, the downside of this is, there is some downside for us, but it's far from terminal, Mm-hmm. It might, but on the other hand, we get their support for, and normally they'd say, well, in return, we'd want you to back us on this, this, and this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it probably balances out in our favour. Mm. Or, or it doesn't. I think it's more that than is this the democratic and fair thing to do. It's more, you know, who wins from this, who loses. It's more pragmatic. In a political yeah. sense, yeah. Well, what are your thoughts on MMP generally? Because obviously you've been a, a beneficiary mm. of it, um, and it creates more proportional representation. But then you end up with this weird situation where you don't get exactly what you voted for. You vote for a party and mm. they have their policies, and but then you know, you know, you, you're two ticks blue and you end up with black and yellow yeah, as a yeah. side dish. Yeah, I think some would say that's a problem. Mm. Uh, I think it's inevitable. You know, it used to happen under first past the post too, to some extent. You voted for governments who promised to do various things and then went off and did completely the opposite because circumstances have changed. Yeah, I think MMP has provided for better representation of diversity and. Um, you know, different viewpoints and aspects of those viewpoints. It will never be perfect. Mm. I've always favoured personally STV for the simple reason that everyone gets directly elected at that point. Yeah. You know, the, I think you've got a right to vote for your MP. You've also got a right to vote against your MP. And if you vote against your MP and they pop back on Monday because they're high up on the list, that's a bit of a frustration of the process. But I think MPs work pretty well for New Zealand. I think that uh, we've had stable government by and large. Uh, Governments have been able to progress big ideas. Uh, there hasn't been that sort of inertia effect that people feared. And I think gradually the politicians and the public has taken the best part of 30 years, but gradually we're getting to understand how it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you see um, 
it's been a relatively good in, in the electorate. It's a good year for for MMP. Mm. There's been a few a few minor party wins and a few mm. electorates. Mm. That's I think quite a, a fascinating and encouraging sign, really, mm. because it's not just the two party monopoly yeah. that's being broken. And I think it's really interesting, particularly with the Greens, that. The one thing that was always sort of said, you know, for a minor party, it's a waste of time pursuing a two-vote strategy. You're only going to get one. Yeah. And they did that for a long time. We all did. With them now actively pursuing a two-vote, a two-tick strategy, and act in Tamaki, for instance, yeah. Yeah. it pays a dividend. If yeah. your candidates are good enough and strong enough. Yeah. Yeah. So act, you know, one, two electorates, mm. Greens, one, three. Mm. New Zealand First didn't want any, but, uh, you know... Um, mm. Yeah, it's interesting though. But then, then on the other hand, we sort of have had two quite—I mean, this election—two quite clearly defined blocks form. Is that in the spirit of MMP? Too? Oh, I think it's inevitable. Mm. And funnily enough, you know, you say, well, you know, we've still got the left and the right. Mm. We've still got a confrontational parliament. Uh, we're never going to get kumbaya. We're never going to get everyone hanging, you know, sitting around holding hands, making collective decisions. It's always going to be the side with the numbers that wins. Uh, I think what's happened is that um, MMP has made the the biases and the contradictions that were inherent in the major parties much more explicit because they've gone off and formed the Greens, New Zealand First Act, the Maori Party, United Future. Um, Interestingly, um, I saw a figure just before the election, 106 parties have been formed since MMP was established. Only six, the ones that I just mentioned, have ever made it to Parliament. So the, the argument that MMP is going to lead to a sort of a proliferation of minor parties and a, a, you know, just not borne out by reality. Do you support the 5% threshold? Uh, I always favoured 4%, 4% and the retention of the one-seat rule. Okay. And the reason is because 4% is still a mighty big hurdle mm, to, yeah. to cross. And I start from the perspective, the, rec- the, the Royal Commission recommended that. Parliament said, oh, if 4% is too low, we'll make it 5 I think that the, the objective of the Royal Commission was to make it as easy as possible to gain representation mm-hmm. without being silly about it. Yeah. And I think that principle's got to be retained. So if you if you drop the one-seat rule, then I'd say you need to bring the threshold back to maybe 25 3%. Okay. If you want to keep the threshold at 4 or 5%, then you keep the one-seat rule. Yeah. Because in reality, the number of occasions when the one-seat rule has distorted government have been minimal. Minimal, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I sort of, in, in principle, don't love the threshold because it feels very mm. hard mm. to cross. But then when I think about, like, if you did away with the threshold... What would have happened, and and would I actually have wanted any of those yeah, scenarios? Yeah, it's quite hard. That's right. You need you need to draw a line somewhere, but it's yeah. got to be one I think that doesn't discriminate against you know, reasonable opportunity for political representation. Yeah. Can I finish with a um a, a slightly personal question? Yeah. You, you have an iconic look, the bow tie, the sweep of hair. <laughs> Can I ask about the bow tie? Why 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 wear why? it, and how did that happen? What's the story? <laughs> is there one? Well, there is a bit in a way. Um, it's a boring story. Okay. Um, I actually quite liked them. Mm. I was never brave enough to start wearing them until one day I thought, what the hell? And that, so that was that. I'm sort of an inherent low-key rebel. Okay. The other thing was I, I, I was sick and tired of spilling food and stuff on ties and having stains. Mm-hmm. And bow ties are a little harder to stain in that sense. Um, but the funny thing was when I first started doing so, I was told by a very prominent um, PR agent, sadly, who since died, who I respected greatly that, don't do that, don't do that. You'll only draw attention to yourself. And I thought, well, that's sort of part of the objective if you're in politics, really. So it became my mm. trademark. The hair is absolutely natural. It, um, <laughs> it's just always, it's gone that way, always. Um, 
People don't believe that. I had the occasion once at the Bolton Hotel in Wellington where a prominent New Zealand businessman who shall remain nameless came up and grabbed and tried to <laughs> literally sculpt me because he believed it was a wig. He was horrified to discover it didn't come off in his hands. Wow. Okay. Um, final question. What do you think people most frequently misunderstand about coalition negotiations? What do they get wrong? What does the public miss? Oh, I think that they... Um, they s- in a way, the outcome of coalition leaves everyone sort of equally dissatisfied. Okay. You know, everyone's had to give up something. I think they think that the minor parties have sold their souls. You know, that, that you should... Um, on the one hand, they want stable, reliable government. On the other hand, you shouldn't sign up with this lot and you should bring them down at the first possible opportunity mm-hmm. because if you don't, you're just being craven. Right. And if you've accepted a ministerial post, you're, even, you know, you're not just craven, you're corrupt, all that sort of nonsense. Mm-hmm. But if you said, well, okay, that's fine, we'll walk out tomorrow and pull the plug and there'll be an election tomorrow and then another one in six months' time, oh, no, we don't want that. So I think people just misunderstand that these are, um, they are marriages of convenience. Mm-hmm. They'll never be perfect, but everyone tries to get the best out of them that they can and everyone tries to get the best deal for their own particular side that they can. Mm-hmm. In, in a way, that's what we do in life anyway. It feels like the whole point of democracy is about compromise yeah. and it feels like compromise is going a little bit out of fashion and, and yep. sort of partisanship is taking yep. over and people would rather lose than compromise. Yeah, I think that's that's a real fear and I think over the last few years that's certainly the way societies move. That I'm right and you're wrong and there's no there's no um, balance between us. But if you take a if you take a, I'm just trying to think as I as I talk of a couple of examples because I know there have been where we've started out and they would be more particularly with Labour than with National, that Labour wanting to do something. And, and, and we we saying to them, well, look, we sort of agree, but not that way. And how you then work out, well, what can we agree on? And you get something that, that works. I think probably the early days of working for families was like that. Labour wanted to... Um, they didn't... They didn't want to reform the benefit system per se, but they wanted to give more money to people on low incomes or people who were, were, were um, um, you know, not so much benefit dependent, but really at the edge. They were not in favour of tax cuts. So how could you do it through a tax credit system? That was what was starting to evolve. We were much more explicitly in favour of tax cuts. Mm-hmm. And how it worked out was working out that they weren't going to buy tax cuts. So how could you deliver the same thing by different mechanisms. From our perspective, how could you deliver more money in people's pockets? From their perspective, how could you be seen to be sort of reforming the benefit and um, family assistance systems to be more responsive to family needs? Mm-hmm. And family working for families, which uh, national derided as, work, as, as communism by stealth, and then um, <laughs> strengthened and made you know even more pervasive when they became the government, and now obviously that's continued, uh, was the result. Yeah. Beautiful, the art, the art of compromise. It is, and just working through what's, the, what do you actually want at the end of all of this? Mm-hmm. The mechanism is secondary to the outcome. Yep. If you want to see certain things achieved, and we agree on those, then maybe we need to look at different ways. Are there different ways of getting there that meet our respective objectives? That's brilliant. Peter Dunn, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.